Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. As you know, we have yet another uh, mass shooting, mass school shooting. The choreography and uh, the sort of the ritualized behavior is the same every time. I don't even know what we call them at this point. And uh, at least the last time we, we, we record uh, the podcast uh, around noon on Wednesdays. Today, we're starting a little after 1 p.m. So this is yesterday, something we're talking about, if you're listening a few days later. And uh, I don't know the exact, uh, if there's an updated fatality count as of this hour, but last night it was 21 or 22 people, uh, 19 students. And what do you say? This happens all the time in the United States. It's not even the largest number of fatalities for one of these shootings in the United States. It's up there. But again, this happens all the time in the United States. You have this incident, this massacre in Buffalo about a week and a half ago. You know, slightly different permutation of the, what do you call it, genre, for lack of a better word. A racist motivated mass shooting in a supermarket where the shooter, uh, a young white man, uh, knew there, there was a heavy concentration of African-Americans. The thing that, again, you know, the big story is that there is nothing new about these things. You know, back uh, for those of us who were old enough, I looked it up last night and the Columbine school massacre was 23 years ago just a touch more than 23 years ago, it was April 1999. And it's not like there hadn't been shootings with multiple fatalities before that. But that was the kind of the, it was the, it was the first high profile one of these school shootings where some, you know, angry losers who were into, you know, transgressive behavior and guns and, you know, torturing animals, uh, kind of plan it out and go and kill a bunch of their classmates. And in that case, uh, killed themselves. Same with the, uh, same with the shooter yesterday at this town in Texas, a 18 year old man apparently went out and legally bought his guns like the day he turned 18. And each of these in some ways is a, a copycat of Columbine that kind of set the, set the terms of it. Right. And uh, the thing that jumped out at me about this 
massacre yesterday. And again, it's one of at some level, it's hard to say, is is it how much worse is it if the victims are seven, eight, nine versus 13, 14, 15? You know, uh, there's some greater level of innocence and and, uh, vulnerability. But how do you really distinguish between these two things? Yesterday, I believe it was a school that was, I'm not familiar with schools that just have this range, but second, third, and fourth grade, so kind of part of elementary school, don't exactly understand that, but not really relevant for these purposes. Uh, But the thing that jumped out to me was something that seemed at least somewhat similar to what happened in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, we're still kind of in the fog of war phase of this, so some of these what seem to be facts may be revised as we go forward. But at least the initial reports that were still coming out yesterday evening were that three separate police officers engaged in firefights with this guy before he even got into the school. Before he even got into the school. Now, when I say firefight, you know, what the word they usually use is engaged the shooter with their weapons. So an exchange of gunfire. Uh, and so, you know, you, you step back and l- let's make sure we understand this. We, we are used to the model where, you know, angry loser goes into the school, starts shooting up kids, police come, there's a shootout, the shooter usually dies, sometimes not. Um, but this is different. For a reason that I don't think is completely explained yet, this this guy kills his grandma, or I'm sorry, shoots his grandmother. I believe she's still alive, like in critical condition at, at some hospital, um, but at least tries to kill her, then drives, crashes his car or truck near this school. At that point, there are calls to the police. There's an armed man who just crashed his car. So he gets out. He starts heading towards the school on foot. And a police officer from the school district police department or police service or whatever first engages this guy in a firefight trying to stop him from getting into the school. He's not able to. Then two local police officers, you know, from the local municipal police department, they engage him. They are also unsuccessful. It seems like because the guy had body armor. So you have a high powered rifle and body armor and obviously you're kind of, I mean, let's say it, you're pumped. You've decided you're about to die, basically. So you're feeling no pain, feeling no anything. You've got more firepower. You're largely invulnerable because of your body armor. It's going to be hard to stop you. But this is different. Again, this is not the police come after it's already underway. Maybe get there 90 seconds. They're there before it starts, and they're not able to stop the guy. So, If you've got the high-powered rifle and you've got the body armor, you know, you've got less fear. You've already decided you're dying. So that's not going to scare you. You've made that decision. And you've got the element of surprise. So, of course, you're going to win. And what happened at this uh, with this shooting in Buffalo, you know, about 10 days ago, something like that. I don't know. The guy goes into the supermarket. He starts killing people. There's a security guard there who's an ex-Buffalo, you know, retired Buffalo police officer. He shoots the guy, but it doesn't stop him because he's got the body armor. The shooter shoots back and kills the retired police officer. 
Now, we all are familiar with the kind of good guy with the gun, all that kind of stuff. That was always absurd, right? Um, Just another, you know, diversion to come up with some other way to deal with these massacres besides what to many of us is the obvious thing, which is what's the common denominator? Everybody can get a high-powered rifle. But even even with that, even setting aside that kind of absurdity, um, these are both cases where an armed person is there already. And not some sort of like, you know, mythical, hypothetical, you know, armed good Samaritan, a cop, three cops, a retired police officer. They're there and they can't stop it because the shooters are coming too strong. They've got the high-powered rifle and they've got the body armor. So, and, and that's kind of like the best case scenario. The police are already there and they can't stop it. At least not, at least they can't stop it without a lot of people getting killed first. And what seems to have happened um, and the, you know, the precise uh, timeline is still a little obscure to me, but what seems to have happened in this case, in this town, and I think it's a town like 100 miles Either I, I think 100 miles from San Antonio or something. I can't. It doesn't really matter. A kind of a small town somewhere in Texas. In uh, that case, you've got the three police officers, one of whom was shot. I don't think any of the police officers were killed. I may be wrong about that. They engage, and it's too much for them. They can't stop the guy. The guy gets in the school. They then call in backup, basically call in the local SWAT team. So the police officers who come in with their own high-caliber rifles, uh, body armor, you know, all the stuff we see when when a lot of us, I think rightly, talk about the militarization of the police. You know, you're coming in with your tank and your body armor and your multiple, you know, your scopes and your helmets and your, right, and your uh, you know, semi-automatic weapons and all that kind of stuff. They have to bring those guys in to, to finally shoot and kill the guy. You know, we always talk about these Everybody falls into the, even even non-Rambo people talk about, you know, to take the guy down. What does that mean? You take the guy down. Guy's not like a rabbit. And I'm not feeling any sympathy, but let, let's, let's what, what do we have with all these euphemisms? To come in and shoot and kill the guy to stop the thing. Because he's murdering like a couple dozen kids. You know, I got, uh, I did a post this morning about this, did a few last night, did another one this morning. And the one this morning, I've gotten a lot of pushback on, a lot. And basically, you know, because President Biden, when he did his speech, he said, you know, we got to stand up to the gun lobby. And uh, I, that sounds like something from the 1990s to me. This isn't about the gun lobby. This isn't about like one organization that just has has so much power or something like that. It's not really about big money. Yes, the gun manufacturers support the NRA and all that kind of stuff. But what this is really about is that what I think I call the functional majority of the country wants it like this. This is the America they want. And I had all sorts of people pushing back saying, well, what are you talking about? And one, one uh, very regular reader said I was like demonizing rural America, this demonization that, that anybody, you know, this is what people want. I don't think, I, I don't think anybody had a very, very small number of people like want these school massacres, but you make your choice about you want 
like no restrictions on guns at all. And this is and this is kind of the this is the collateral damage. Uh, you know, there's geography, there's the kind of the idiosyncrasies of our political system and there's money and messaging and there's the NRA and all that kind of stuff. But come on, we've been at this for like a quarter century. We see this over and over and over again. Uh, I'm not saying anybody likes these days, but what are you comfortable with? What are you okay with? And our political system has kind of rendered a judgment that this is unfortunate but okay and and so i do think there is a functional majority i think what it is is a very large uh minority of the country wants no restrictions on guns basically whatsoever they may tell a kind of a pollster that yeah oh yeah you know uh, some reasonable background check is okay but in practice what they communicate through their political representatives is that this is okay. This is a price worth paying. And uh, it's, you know, concentrate all the sort of anti-majoritarian stuff of our of our political system. Maybe 40% of the people is enough for them to kind of hold sway. But I, I see what these people are saying, kind of disagreeing with me, but I think I'm right. I think that a big, big part of the country, this is what they're okay with. And that's, you know, that's a sobering thought. I don't think it's demonizing anybody. I just think this is what people are comfortable with. In any case, uh, just to transition quickly, let me do a little house business uh, about Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, our sponsor. As summer drags on, your daily iced coffee can start to taste a little flat. Spice things up and make the switch to Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew iced coffee. Grady's captures the distinct flavor of New Orleans-style coffee by adding chicory to their coffee beans. Chicory has a light, natural sweetness that makes for a perfect cup of iced coffee that's rich, smooth, and never bitter. Ready to bring the best of the Big Easy home? You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com and you can get 25% off with the promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate Riga, co-host of the Josh Marshall podcast, what do you what do you think? Is 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 this the gun lobby? Is this the NRA and the big money and stuff, or is it just that this is kind of what our country accepts? You know, I've kind of thought ever since Sandy Hook happened, and no legislation was passed after that. I kind of just came to the conclusion of like some combination of those factors has made it so that there is no case emotionally provocative enough or heartrending enough that Republicans will pass gun legislation. And that is just kind of the beginning and the end, you know, whatever the combination of interests may be, you know, money from the lobby, their constituents supporting this kind of I really, I mean, you're, you don't exaggerate there. It is a complete, there should be no infringements on second amendment rights. And in this weird modern interpretation, we've decided that, you know, people who are accustomed to guns that took, you know, five minutes to reload, we're also talking about guns that can mow down, you know, half a school in a few minutes. So I think what struck me this time is that the Overton window on how we talk about this seems to have shifted in kind of a similar way to how the abortion window shifted really quickly in that 
I saw this one this one quote from uh, Senator Inhofe last night. He says, well, they'll blame guns for everything that's out there. So I would have the same reaction I have every time anything comes up. They want to blame the guns. That's hours after like small children were murdered. I just think it shows this profound disconnect and void of empathy that has increasingly since the Trump era come to color a lot of Republican politics. It's almost like you have, you know, the Romneys and these old remnants being like, where my wife and I are heartbroken, thoughts and prayers, you know, that old model of how a Republican Congress person should react. But then you'll have this and you'll have Ted Cruz being like, well, time to arm the teachers, you know, after you find out that there were armed people on the scene. So that's not a good answer. So then it's, well, who else doesn't have guns in this situation? Let's also get them guns. You know, it it did feel like this shift to me that we've moved from the kind of weeping and rending of garments after Sandy Hook to that window for emotional response has been even shortened. And it's, it's this pivot back to, no, 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 I'm on the side of the guns. And that's the situation. Democrats are trying to politicize this, blah, blah, blah. And I think, I do think it might have something to do with the fact that the Supreme Court right now is poised to, you know, hand down what would be their their most significant decision on guns to date, which involves, you know, the New York uh, licensing for unrestricted concealed carry of handguns. And it seems very likely after oral arguments that they're going to loosen that law, which has been on the books for 100 years and make it much easier for more people in New York to carry hidden guns. And, you know, during oral arguments, the justices brought up the practicable realities of that, which is more guns on the subway, more guns in the Yankee Stadium, more guns on NYU's campus. I mean, that is what happens. And I think that changes things. I mean, I think when you've got a Supreme Court kind of ready to act on this, you as a Republican don't have as much space to pretend like you're conflicted or to pretend like you're being pulled in different directions. Same on abortion, you know, like we have been talking about this, how it might politically behoove them to pretend like, no, we just want to send this back to the states. This is democracy, you know, get over it, crying libs. But they can't help themselves from instead being like, talking about banning it nationwide or starting in on contraception. I mean, once you've got all the chips on your side, I think there's just less compulsion to pretend like you're on this tightrope between two things and you're just trying to find a reasonable solution. And that's how a lot of last night's Republican reaction read to me. You know, there there's something that happened in, in the buildup to the Civil War in the United States, and that is that at the time of the country's founding, and for the first few decades after the American Revolution, there were there were very few people who made any sort of positive argument for slavery. It was, you know, we're kind of stuck with it. It'll kind of die out over time. Everybody, agree, everybody agreed in principle that slavery was an unfortunate thing. Not that, not that that mattered, right? But they, but in terms of what people said, and then as the as the slavery uh, agitation built up in the early decades of the 19th century, um, that didn't kind of work anymore. As it became more and more central an issue, it just didn't cut it to say, well, yeah, it's bad, but can't really do anything about it. And 
we can't live with the ex-slaves, all these kind of excuses. You need to move on to kind of like, no, this is what we want. This is, this is, this is good. It's not some unfortunate thing that it's going to be hard to deal with. And you've seen something very similar in the evolution of, of gun politics over the last 30 years or so. And I believe it was after, I believe it was after Newtown where there was this two or three day window. Um, you know, it, there's so many of these gun massacres. Maybe this, maybe this happened in, in, in the wake of a different one, but I think it was Newtown. In the wake of, there was this period where the, where the NRA was kind of silent for a couple of days. And because there was this, there was this perception, as you say, the kind of like, wow, this is like, you know, a massacre of like a couple dozen, I don't know, remember the exact number, I think it was about 20 kids, maybe a few more, uh, a massacre of like, you know, first and second graders, like this is, this is a kind of a turning point. And so the NRA was silent for a few days and then they came back with, you know, okay, what, what reforms are we going to agree to? None. Because the answer is a good guy with a gun. We're not, you need more guns. The answer is not kind of what restriction, like more guns is the answer. And we've kind of been on that ever since. And, and I think you're right that part of it is the sort of the, the post-Trump or Trump era kind of coarsening of, um, of politics. But, you, you, you know, that kind of thoughts and prayers thing I think the rest of the non-gun part of the country has made it, in a way, made a convincing argument that even the pro-gun people have recognized that thoughts and prayers is kind of is absurd. That's just that that's a ridiculous response. You need a response, and the response is, "Fuck you guys. We need more guns." You know, it's like that old like you know, leave Brittany alone, leave guns alone right? Stop beating up on the guns. Uh, and so you saw that. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, there's something very different because not that long ago, the argument was always, okay, yeah, sure. It's not like background checks are the end of the world, or it's not like it would be the end of the world to restrict this gun or that gun, but it's, you know, the, the camel's nose under the tent. It's, you know, first it's one thing, then it's the other. Suddenly we're all disarmed and, and you're forcing us all to change our pronouns, right? At a certain point, you need to make a positive argument. We need more guns. And, and you know, that, that's kind of where we are. And, and, and I, I think we have to be, I, I think we have to be more candid with ourselves that, Yes, our democratic process is not perfect. There's money, there's gerrymandering, there's all these kind of things. But these are people who represent a big, big swath of the country. And, you know, right out of the bat, they're defending the guns and saying we need more guns or kind of arm the teachers. And again, I, 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 I do think this is, I don't think it's a turning point in the sense of it's going to matter from a policy perspective, but it is a bit of a turning point that, I mean, again, not just some like random dude who has a, a revolver, but you've got cops there. Like they're like in a firefight to, to a battle over the school to get into the school. And the guy still gets in. You know, how many more armed people do you think there are going to be? 
that's really like the best case scenario from the, you know from this from this perspective. I mean, you're going to have like a, a moat, and there's people like in foxholes. Like, I mean, you're never going to have in any realistic sense enough people to to you know harden the school in that sense. And like, and like, yeah, is the is the the grade school teacher going to have body armor and a gun? It's just, I don't know. I'm 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 not. Uh, I don't like being pessimistic about things and, you know, nothing ever stays the same forever. Uh, maybe, maybe something will kind of give way at some point, but our political system basically communicates sort of mass opinion through elected officials. Certainly not perfectly. Certain parts of the country you know, have more political muscle than others, all that kind of stuff. Basically, rural areas have more political muscle than cities. We know that. But still, a big, big, big part of the country is just okay with this. And I think you know that because otherwise, half the country's political representatives wouldn't be saying stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, to move on to the Democratic response, basically last night, Schumer scheduled two bills that would like, in a way that almost feels offensive, isn't the right word, but comical in the in the face of such a huge tragedy would like, they would take these kind of small measures to tighten up the background check system, including, for instance, giving the FBI 20 days instead of three to investigate the background of the gun purchaser, which I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a good thing, but it's also like, just pales in comparison to the scope of this tragedy. But anyway, he put it on the calendar last night, got a bunch of retweets and a bunch of, oh, look, Democrats are going to do something. And then you crash into the cold, sober light of morning and realize that there's no way in hell that even those incremental bills are going to pass while the filibuster stands. And, you know, Schumer this morning from the floor, he says, Americans can cast their vote in November for senators or members of Congress that reflect how he or she stands with guns. In the meantime, my Republican colleagues can work with us now. I know this is a slim prospect, very slim, all too slim. We've been burnt so many times before. So not exactly a vote of confidence that this legislation is going anywhere. Um, well, it's, it's also that I would, one of the most important things in politics is never to make a mockery of yourself. And I think those kind of statements, you're making a mockery of yourself. Yeah. I think if you are going to do one of these test votes that is not going to go anywhere, you should say, look, let's just, you know, sort of reiterate with action so we know where everybody stands. That it's these people who won't let us do anything. So we're going to hold a vote just to just to show that these people will not do anything. We know, you, you know, we know we know that. But let's 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 just do it again. Just to kind of update the record. To show who is unwilling to do anything about this. You know, why not? I mean, I get that. That, that. There's a logic to that. But all this kind of like, we've been disappointed before. You can help. I mean, come on, dude. I mean, come on. I mean, it's, you know, and, and it's, you know, Republicans have gotten better at this over time. Used to have it where the, uh, you know, Romney or Murkowski or Collins types would be a little anguishing. You know, what are they going to do? Not that it matters because you need 60 votes or whatever, but, you know, a little, little drama, a little anguish. And but but they have uh, they have gotten better 
at just sort of saying, well, blah, blah, and you guys are mean and radical and bipartisan, something, whatever, you know, sort, sort of the way that uh, uh, Susan Collins and uh, Lisa Murkowski didn't vote to allow a vote on that abortion thing, on that abortion bill, because they notionally had their own, you know, mini abortion bill or, you know, less protective abortion bill. But they wouldn't, they were still with their party on not allowing it to come to a vote. And if they would have voted to allow it to come to the vote, it still wouldn't have come to the vote. So it's like a free vote, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have come to a vote. And then they still could have voted against it when it came to a vote. And the Democrats only had 49 votes. So it was like a free vote on three or four different levels. They still were good. But so they've, 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 they've come up with, they have a self-excusing mechanism that makes it all fine. And they certainly would here as, as, as well. So yeah, you're sort of making a, making a mockery of yourself, I think is, is the way to put it. You know, and then I, I know this is something our listeners know well, but I do think it bears repeating, which is the fact that uh, none of this legislation will pass is because the filibuster is in place and there are not 10 Republican votes for anything. Democrats want to do much less gun control legislation, which Republicans really don't want to do. But that being said, us knowing that, us knowing that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are the two Democrats that are single-handedly holding up an entire swath of legislation on basically every topic you can imagine that Democratic constituents are passionate about. She gave a rare hallway interview this morning to reporters, which she almost never does, that I thought after last night, I was such a husk of a human that I didn't have the capacity for anger anymore. But no, it really made me incandescent with rage, which is that she said she expressed her conviction that Americans just want Congress to do something. And then the reporter said, okay, sweet. So does that mean that you'll allow for a filibuster carve out at least to pass some gun legislation? And she says, you know, I don't think DC solutions are realistic here, but there might be some things we can do. There's some shared agreement on red flag, which I think might be a place to start conversations to actually get something done for real that would make a difference to people. And it's just so belittling this thing of DC solutions. Real Americans want real solutions. That's like, no one is as stupid as you think they are. Everyone knows that this DC solution is the only way you would pass a bill. I mean, it's so, it just captures, I think, her like utter disdain for the people that she serves. And her almost kind of gleeful pretend repudiation of the job that she signed up for and worked very, very hard to get. And then to pretend that she's not interested in DC solutions, said the set the senator from Arizona who works in DC every day. I mean, it's just it's not surprising, but it, it honestly it kind of explains why she doesn't give hallway interviews more often. Um, and then we also, you know, if there's any doubt mansion as well. The filibuster should not be needed at all. We'd be talking about throwing out the one tool we have that keeps us working, at least talking together. Without that, you get no 
checks and balances from the executive branch, no matter who they may be, which that's an argument against the filibuster that is completely novel to me because I don't understand it at all. What does the filibuster have to do with the presidential veto? Nothing. Can the president not veto a bill passed with the filibuster or without? And then he has he adds this. Everyone wants to go just to the filibuster, filibuster, filibuster. Get rid of that. That's the easy way out, he says, the day after children are murdered. So, yeah, to, you know, to me, it's not even you don't even have to see it through the prism of the reaction to this, you know, massacre. I mean, the easy way. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> I, I guess I just shouldn't engage with arguments that Manchin makes because they're all stupid arguments. Um, he's not a bright guy. He's not. He's not actually engaging this. He holds the card. So, you know, uh, everybody has to kind of listen to what he says because it's all up to him and kind of, okay, you know, Democrats should have gotten more seats and not be, you know, not not be in this uh, position. You know, the whole the whole idea that you that the Senate can only operate by supermajorities is is novel and absurd. And, you know, to the extent you want to kind of even participate in his logic, it actually, the existence of the filibuster has actually greatly empowered the executive branch. Because it, it, because it, it means the, the, you know, legislative branch basically can't function you know, can't actually act. And it's, you know, it's largely a zero sum between the executive and legislative branch since, you know, since they are the, they are the main contending powers. Yes, judiciary is there, but kind of it's not, not quite symmetrical in the same way. So you disempower one, you empower the other. So the whole argument is, is, is totally absurd. And um, the more we talk about it, the more I am convinced of the the sort of the painful logic of what I wrote that this is this is the setup that uh, a big swath of the country wants. You know, no, that doesn't mean they like kid massacres. I'm not saying that, uh, but we all have things we're willing to accept for other, you know, to get other things, right? And this is. This is something that that big chunk of the country, functionally a governing majority of the country, is okay with. How can it not be? How, how otherwise? What is your explanation? I mean, yes, the the country is not a the 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 apparatus of the state is not a perfect, you know, a perfect translation of majority will. It's not even supposed to be a perfect translation of majority will, but the will of the most people you know, kind of gets through over time and it hasn't. So that just kind of tells us the story, I think. I guess, anyway, it's so depressing. We should probably get to the uh, to the primary elections, right? Yeah. So <laughs> last night, while this was hanging over everything, we also had, you know, a bundle of high profile, interesting, in certain cases, critical primary races. So, you know, as usual, the nexus of focus is on Georgia which is hosting senator, governor, and secretary of state races. Now, for yesterday, the senator and governor contests were pretty much predetermined by this point. Uh, 
Warnock was running all but unopposed. Stacey Abrams was running unopposed. And then on the Republican side, Herschel Walker had been leading in the Senate Republican primary in every poll for basically this entire stretch. Um, And then for governor on the Republican side, there was like a little bit of initial drama because it was Brian Kemp versus David Perdue and Perdue had the Trump endorsement and was running as the big lie candidate and Kemp was running as like the shitty in all the other ways, but (laughs) says the election was cool candidate and Kemp really just humiliated Purdue. Like as of last night, Purdue was down 50 points. He might have cut into that somewhat, but I mean, his campaign just kind of limped over the finish line. Trump basically gave up on him. Um, so, you know, that like was almost, the only... Almost disendorsed him. Right. Yeah. So those fields are set. Uh, a Kemp-Abrams rematch and then Warnock and Walker will face off for... A full Senate term this time because Warnock is really experiencing the worst of all world. Because if you ask me, like the biggest perk of being a senator is you don't have to run for six years, but he is having to run two years after he won before. So raw deal for the Reverend Senator. And obviously, in a in a much less favorable electoral climate. Right. Um, although I would say probably with a more vulnerable opponent. I mean, one thing just mm-hmm. to remind everybody, uh, David Perdue isn't some rando Trump came up with. He was a sitting senator. He, mm-hmm. He's the one who lost to Ossoff, right? I mean, there were the two. Yep. Right. Okay. So this guy was an incumbent senator, right? So not some random. Um, and as, as, as Kate said, he got totally smoked. I mean, and, <laughs> and the funny, you know, the Kemp thing is such a, uh, and we haven't gotten to the, well, well, we'll get to the other big race in Georgia in a second, I guess. Kemp is a, the, the dynamics of this race are fascinating because Kemp is a hardcore conservative, very successful in policy. I mean, he got elected as a, you know, running very much to the right. He got elected and he's passed tons of right wing legislation. Like if you were a conservative Republican, you look at Brian Kemp and say, wow, this dude rocks. He got elected and he got all the stuff we want done. Uh, He oversaw passing all sorts of voting restriction legislation. And if memory serves, he before he became governor, he was secretary of state. So he was, you know, he was, uh, uh, you, you know, restricting voting rights for years. And he got, but as Kate says, the one thing, he did not go along with the big lie. And that just wasn't that... You know, most Georgians were like, you know, okay, can't have everything. So what about Raffensperger? That's the big one. Yeah. So the big, the one that was not predestined going into it was the Secretary of State battle where you have Brad Raffensperger who came to fame in 2020 for his refusal to kind of kowtow to Trump and to, quote, find more votes for Trump in Georgia. Uh, He's facing off against Jody Heiss, who is a congressman and is just the full kind of MAGA warrior mold. You know, he went all in on the big lie, um, you know, and everything that follows from that. He's just very, he's MAGA through and through. And the prognosticators going into this race were down on Raffensperger. I mean, the conventional wisdom for a long time was you can't piss off Trump to the extent that you've pissed him off and still, you know, win major Republican races. And 
Raffensperger has pissed Trump off to the furthest extent. Trump hates this man with the fire of a thousand desert suns. So the real question was, will Raffensperger be able to kind of wrangle his way into a runoff? And then, you know, the kind of conventional wisdom for how that runoff would go is even worse for Raffensperger, because then the idea is, you know, there won't be so much distraction. Trump will go all in on bashing him day in, day out. You've also just got the fact that kind of weird date races, off-calendar races, tend to attract the more extreme elements of the parties anyway, which would go in Heiss's favor. So you've got all this stewing. And then last night, not only does Ravensburger run stronger than anybody anticipated, he won outright. He doesn't even have to go into a runoff, which means, you know, he finished above 50%. And that is significant. And I know a lot of kind of like the type of people on Twitter who want no one to enjoy anything ever were like, well, you know what? Raffensperger vote suppresses with the best of them and blah, blah, blah. And no one's no one's arguing. What we're arguing over right now is who controls Georgia, particularly in 2024. And if it's Jody Heiss, we knew that if a Democrat won that state, it would not matter because only a Republican would be allowed to win. And that is not any longer the situation that we're in. And that is a cause for celebration, no matter the naysayers who have, you know, valid other problems with Brad Raffensperger. I think it's, you know, the, the point that is that we should highlight for listeners is that both Kemp and Raffensperger in a way refused to go along with the big lie. But the the nuances, the specifics were significantly different. Mm-hmm. You know, during that period of time, like Kemp was in so many words saying, Trump, I love you. And man, you know, just don't make me say anything. And I want to be there. And Joe Biden sucks. I mean, he was kind of he the thing he wouldn't do, he would not affirmatively break the law. He wouldn't he wouldn't take con. I mean, he was basically he wasn't really saying anything against the big lie. He just would not break the law himself to kind of, you know, th- these these uh, points in the process where all the governor does is just, hey, got to sign my name saying this is the results, blah, 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 that he wasn't going along with people who just said, just fucking tear the paper up, man. Don't sign it. You know, that kind of stuff. You wouldn't do that. Ravensburger was a bit different. He there's a reason why he, he you know, momentarily became sort of like a democratic or just democracy folk hero because he wasn't just he he. Trump pushed him hard and he just started saying, dude, you lost. You fucking lost. And like, I'm not going to say you won and I'm not going to break the law. And like, if my career goes down the drain, fine. But like you lost and we've got rules and I'm not going to break the law for you and blah, 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 blah. So he went pretty all in as did, uh, there's another guy who, another very conservative Republican who I guess he's. I think below the Secretary of State, this guy, I'm not sure if it's an elected position. Abe Sterling, but, right? Right. The, the guy who was, uh, what, yeah, what is his name I again? I don't know. Gabe Sterling. Okay, yeah. But yeah. Like, Ravensburger is kind of like lieutenant for all intents and purposes. Right. But another, the point being, another conservative Republican yeah. who kind of went all in like, no, dude, you lost and we are not going to fake the election results and call off your death threats and all that kind of stuff. So, it you know the functional effect was the same but i mean brian kemp 
wanted to help so bad and he made it clear and he didn't want to say anything mean to Trump. And he, he, you know, all but wanted to say as he was signing the the form, this is, this is bullshit. I hate (laughs) Joe Biden. And, uh, Ravensburger went all in and he won. And, and one thing I am curious whether you saw anything about this one thing I, uh, the people who, you know, I know who follow these, you know, follow numbers on election nights very, very closely. We're saying that there was at least some circumstantial evidence that Raffensperger was benefiting from a lot of Democratic co- crossover vote, that the, the, the races were pretty – there were no uh, – not, not much was really in doubt on the Democratic side. So apparently a lot of – a significant number of Democrats crossed over and voted in the Republican uh, primaries and that that probably helped Kemp, although clearly he didn't need much help. Um and it also what what it may have done for Raffensperger, it may have been the margin that allowed him to get over fifty percent mm-hmm. and end it last night. Um, but even with that, I mean, what was what was what was uh, Heiss's total? The other guy's oh. total was it basically kind of fifty two forty eight kind of thing? Mm-mm, or? Mm-mm. As of last night, it was much lower. Like he wasn't even that close. Right. So there were other. There were I guess a couple other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So the the point is, is that I think we can still we can still see it as in some ways a positive that even if there were some significant and I was I was seeing like, you know, people saying 10 percent or something like that of, you know, the Democrats mm. who voted voting in the Republican primary, that that would not have been the margin for him winning. It just allowed him to not have to face a runoff. Yeah, um, so Heist is at like thirty three percent with ninety five percent of the vote in. Yeah, so that's pretty. That's not close. Yeah, that's not he got close. Stomped. Yeah, he got. You know stomped. my conspiracy theory about this. I is based totally off this like one off line from some pollster and an article I read about this, which was that some voters thought that Jody Heist was a woman <laughs> because of his name, and now my conspiracy theory is that casual sexism helped Ben Ra- Brad Raffensperger win this race. Can I prove it? I cannot. <laughs> it does sound like, I mean, obviously, I think we all know that there are men named Jody, but it sounds to me like a woman's name. It's it's usually a woman's name. Right. So it could be. Could yeah. be. But, but anyway, um, that but was yeah, a, Trump didn't get it done. That was the biggest, I think, kind of big lie contest that we had, at least in this bundle of races. And it really was kind of an affirmative win for the anti-big lie contingent in a way that, like you say, the Kemp one is that kind of, but just not on the same level. But this one was resounding. And I saw this one quote just from like, you know how reporters sometimes just talk to like random voters outside the polling areas when they're doing their day of pieces. And there was this one quote from this lady who I was thinking about all night. And she was like, you know, I like Trump. I'm a Trump person. Uh, but but Raffensperger, uh, you know, stood up and, and did what he believed in. And fair is fair. And I was just like, how can you believe both of those things at right. once? Those are inherently contradictory ideas. But it does go to this thing of like, I think a lot of times our politics are just about the characters involved and if people like slash respect the characters or not. So in this case, Trump and Raffensperger do not live on the same plane of reality. But this woman who likes Trump also liked that Ravensburger kind of stuck to his guns, you know, and it's just this, our 
a weird, weird, like popularity based political system, you know? Yeah. And look, uh, you know, one, one thing that is just one thing that we all learn about politics over time is that individual voters do not have, I, when I say coherent, I don't mean like, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. They Individual voters frequently do not have political views where everything is reconciled mm-hmm. in the way that, um, you know, political elites think of things being reconciled. And that's just that is the reality. People don't think in the same, you know, in the same ways. I, I, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, the thing that makes the Raffensperger thing, I think, really a positive for all the stuff about him is that it's not like before the 2020 election, everybody's like, oh, Raffensperger, he's my dude. Even, even like Georgia Republicans, it's a secretary of state. People barely even know about those races. I mean, maybe they should, but they don't, okay? And secretary of state, sec- I don't know exactly what the portfolio is in Texas, but secretary of state's Secretaries of State often have you know various, but elections usually is the big thing. And so in his case, it's like you had one job, right? I mean, with Kemp, if you're a conservative in Georgia, you can say, all right, he, that he he screwed up on the election, but man, he's done you know everything else on my checklist of what I wanted a governor to do. Um, but in Raffensperger's case, you only know about him because of the big lie and that right. whole thing. And from a Republican perspective, again, Secretary of State, you had one job. You should have stolen the election and you didn't, right? So, you know, there just is something kind of uh, redeeming about that, that Trump went all in. Uh, this guy also went all in on, I'm going to count the votes and I'm not going to steal the election for you. And he pulled it off. So good for him. Yeah. So there were uh, a few other kind of notable races last night with less implications for the health of our democracy, but of interest for other reasons. So in Alabama, we had the the resurrection of Mo Brooks. So Mo Brooks is super MAGA guy, subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, all in. Trump rescinded his endorsement of Brooks back in March because, well, it seems because Brooks made a comment at a Trump rally, basically telling everyone who was upset about the 2020 election to kind of move on, to focus on the future. And the crowd booed and was very (laughs) displeased with that. So Trump rescinds his endorsement. Brooks, everyone thinks absolute toast. You know, how do you come back from that? So the two other candidates in the race start focusing all their energy and all their negative ads and all their money on each other, just like going at each other's throats for months. Meanwhile, Brooks is kind of slinking along in the background at this distant third. And then as we're coming down the home stretch, all of a sudden, Brooks has kind of saved up what paltry money he has in his campaign chest to kind of flood the airwaves with ads. And because the Trump endorsement kerfuffle happened relatively early in the primary cycle, I don't even think that many voters knew about it because it happened in March. Who's paying attention there? Who's like a normal person? So anyway, he came back enough to get into the runoff with Katie Britt, who was Richard Shelby's chief of staff, who's the senator who's vacating the seat. So they're going to have another kind of four months to duke it out. Brooks was 
way, way behind Britt. Like this was not uh, there within two points of each other. Like she nearly doubled him. So he's going to have to figure something out for the runoff. But he but was the third out, candidate someone mm-hmm. who's kind of I mean, because Britt, it sounds like if she's if she's Shelby, if, if she was Shelby's chief of staff, she's like the establishment Republican establishment candidate right. was the third candidate more another MAGA person because then if that's the case maybe Brooks has a shot in a in a runoff yeah well he was just this kind of mold of like you know he's a veteran and um his like scandal I mean they're all trying to out outright each other you know his scandal was he made some comment once about how you know topically uh getting giving civilians access to all these military weapons is like bad and causes all this violence. And so people were mad at him about that. And then her thing was even funnier that people thought Katie Britt was not sufficiently anti-abortion because, wait for it, a college group that she was a president of, while during that, she did not veto a non-binding resolution with like exemptions for for rape and incest (laughs) or something like that. Like that is what they are hanging their hats on here. Right. Well, Um, I mean, it's Alabama. Right. So. Right. It's a, it's a conservative state. Yeah. And, and probably anybody, any Republican running there would would have to be very far right by national standards. Right. Um, and so now wasn't it my right? And I may be wrong about this. I thought that when Brooks, when Trump sort of abandoned Brooks and did he did he formally rescind his endorsement or in that case or? He formally rescinded the endorsement and then the Brooks campaign had sent out like mailers kind of touting Trump's uh, endorsement. And he tweeted something that was like, all caps, can't do that, Mo. Can't do that. <laughs> and it's like the Brooks campaign was like, no, we sent those out before. Not our fault. But wasn't it? I thought that it wasn't just that he made that statement, that part of it was that he was already kind of flagging. And as we know, if Trump endorses you and you start not doing well, Trump will start trying to lay the groundwork to abandon you because he doesn't he doesn't like what ended up happening with Purdue where he mm-hmm. gets behind you and you totally fail and and it's a reflection on him. So wasn't that part of it that Brooks was yeah. kind of already having a hard time and so Trump was getting a little buyer's remorse? It was, it was a mix like that. I do want to quickly correct myself. The the Brit thing that she dared to do in college is the the non-binding resolution supported the availability of emergency contraception. So asterisks. That's what she did not veto that has gotten her not sufficiently anti-abortion. So basically morning after pill that she was, exactly. she went plan soft B. on morning after pill. Yep. Plan B. Right, right, exactly. right, 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 right. Okay. Well, that, so that's, that's wonderful stuff. That's wonderful. <laughs> okay. So another fairly significant race to me was in Georgia, because of kind of hostile Republican redistricting, we had Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux, two incumbents forced into the same district, basically, because the other district had suddenly become, you know, Trump plus 15 or whatever. So they ran against each other. And and when to the extent that we can distinguish is the other district, is that McBride, whose district is the one that kind of got I'm folded almost in? I'm positive that McBath moved to Bordeaux. OK, so they basically changed McBath's district yeah. into more and and that is still the sort of the descendant of Gingrich's district right that yeah, district right right 
Mm-hmm. So they shifted that one around. That's interesting. Interesting. So, okay. So what's this? What happened? Yeah, it was Macbeth. Um, so what's interesting here is that, well, you have also the irony of Macbeth winning yesterday, who was kind of propelled into the political arena to begin with because her son was shot and killed when he was 17. And it kind of made her into a gun control activist and then into a politician. But what's really interesting is that Bordeaux was one of the nine Democrats who made that stand in the House where they demanded that Build Back Better be decoupled from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which you could argue Build Back Better was doomed either way. But it's hard to argue that that didn't at least help the process. Help so in that the was the Gottheimer process. thing, right? Where he was the yes. sort of the ringleader. Okay, got it. Got it right. Got it. And it ha- you know, so Bordeaux loses a day after Kurt Schrader from Oregon, also a member of this group, also lost his primary. Um, and it is. And then you've got another guy who just left Congress altogether to be a, um, you know, a lobbyist. So it is so interesting that you had these Democrats who made this big stand. One has got to believe on the behalf of whatever kind of like corporate entities are don't like build back better and don't want that passed. And then they are left to twist in the wind and lose their primaries after making this stand. So, I don't so know. It, was, it was it was Bordeaux. I, I got I got confused there for a second. So it was Bordeaux who's the one who's part of that. I thought you said the McBath was part of. Okay, no, got, no, it, no. got it, got it, got yeah. it. I'm got. I don't, I don't know much about. Uh, I know I know much more about Macbeth. I think just because she's been sort of high profile. Yeah. Um. She has the you know the, the personal story. You know. Mm-hmm. tragic personal story, how she got into politics. Um, there's always interest in, uh, you know, that district basically because of Gingrich. And also the fact that if I'm, if I'm uh, kind of keeping everything aligned right in my head, that's also the district that Ossoff tried and failed that's to right, win. That's right, against Claren Handel. Yeah. Right. At early in the, and that was, What's the guy? Wait, Price. What's the guy's name? Who's had it and who who became the HHS secretary? I think Tom Price. I think that's right. Tom Price, right? Okay, Tom Price. So so he is the and that that is that is sort of a a good uh, illustration of the evolution of that district. That Price is you know he's not like a Louis Gohmert, but like you know very conservative Republican. Uh, Trump uh, taps him to become HHS secretary. There is a an open seat and people, and this is again back in 2017, people had noticed that even though Price had just won, that it was actually fairly close. Um, and then this Ossoff guy, you know, decides to run, gets every, it's the sort of the first bite at the apple that Democrats mm-hmm. get after the sort of the devastating defeat you know, uh, uh, victory of, of Donald Trump, you know, kind of every Democrat in the country sends money to this Ossoff guy. He fails because they, they got this establishment Republican. But then in 2018, McBath defeats, was it Handel, the woman's name? Mm-hmm. Um, Handel, who, yeah. who, yeah. And obviously, as we know, Ossoff is now in the Senate. So all what a these, story you know, district. Yeah, the, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of things turn on that the drama of 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 that district. I'm I, I like I said I don't really have anything against Bordeaux. I don't know a lot about her, but I was I'm glad to see Macbeth is is and now is she is that is that 
district one that is does that put her in, in a good position to stay in Congress? I mean, obviously nothing's assured, but is that right? I um, mean, her, her original district probably would have been even even pre redistricting would have been tough. Yeah, the, the newly drawn district would have voted for Biden by twenty six points in twenty twenty. Oh, okay. So yeah, so I'd, I'd say <laughs> I'd say a nail biter. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. So that's that's obviously. I'm curious. I wonder if they. What if they made it even more democratic at the expense of, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So the last race I want to talk about is actually one that is still quite undecided, which is uh, Henry Queller versus Jessica Cisneros. Um, As of a few hours ago, he was leading her by 177 votes. So this is, you know, breathtakingly close. And, It's gotten attention because Queller is the last um, anti-abortion Democrat in the House, a breed that is becoming rapidly extinct, especially on the heels of kind of Bob Casey's big, big turn over in the Senate. And then there's also the fact that the FBI raided his house a few months before the election, which is like not exactly what you want to happen in your home stretch. And, you know, I was looking that up yesterday to see if I just missed the developments that came out of that post the raid. But there's been nothing. His lawyer is basically like, well, he's not the target, so it's going to be fine. But (laughs) we still don't know an awful lot about that. You know, after we had snaps of the FBI windbreakers on his front lawn. Um, And then you have... Uh, Cisneros is like a, you know, quite progressive and has really made her campaign, especially in its later days, about abortion, obviously, because we have the draft opinion and that's something everyone's talking about right now. And the, oh, the other thing about Queller is he's also um, very Republican on the border, very, uh, you know, we should have more security and let fewer people in. So it, it really is kind of being painted as this clash between kind of a, a conservative Democrat, which doesn't exist so much anymore. And then this very young woman who represents the new kind of resurgent progressive wing. And then all of that was baked in further because Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn went to campaign for Queller and said that, uh, you know, he's the only one who's got a shot at winning the general against a Republican. And then you had AOC who is just really furious about that and saying that, you know, they are picking a person who doesn't really represent what the Democratic Party stands for anymore and are cutting off avenues for, you know, particularly young women of color to get into politics. So, you know, that was kind of the framing going into this. And now, as we see, they are virtually tied. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating one because Cuellar has been like, you know, a, a a a thorn in the side of of most national Democrats for a long time. As you say, he is kind of he's uh, you know a conservative Democrat, but even you know which is which is you know we talk about like you know Mansion being a conservative Democrat. Even even you know people don't remember what conservative Democrats were twenty five you know or longer years ago. So he's been kind of that guy for a long time. I think he's kind of like you know a bit of a machine politician type. Um, 
you know, probably so not totally surprising FBI, you know, raided his house or whatever. And, you know, the other I, I believe he represents uh, much of that area in Texas, which was the area that really moved towards Trump in 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 the last election. I think I'm right about that. Maybe I'm uh, I think at least over uh overlaps uh, that that area or whatever i actually it's funny i actually think that the uh party leadership in the house i i think the the degree to which a lot of national democrats have made this into some kind of betrayal is really wrong and kind of silly and the kind of thing that sows a lot of discord in a political coalition. The reality is party, the role of a party leader in the house is to support their members. That's, that's what they do. That's really their job. Um, they keep everybody on board and whatever. They never run against members of their caucus. That never happens. Never. Even in cases where, you know, there, there are, um, there are some cases, and and this, I think the other, maybe the second to last, you know, anti-abortion Democrat was this guy in um, was this guy in Illinois who I think lost his seat in twenty twenty, if I'm remembering right, or maybe I can't remember. He, I think he's out now. Was uh, he the Obamacare guy? What's that? Was he the Obamacare guy? There was like a a few a select group of like anti-abortion Democrats that like almost sunk Obamacare in its final maybe, days. Maybe I, he was basically just, just, you know, very out of, out of sync with the democratic mm. party and all sorts of stuff. And I think gotcha. but abortion was, was a top one. And that was a case, which if I'm remembering this, you, you have a case where, you know, a, 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 someone who, who is a more conventional Democrat could have won that seat without much problem. But in any case, there's there's i think a lot of democrats are not fooling themselves thinking that a a national progressive democrat might really have a hard time winning that race but the point is again the caucus leader never opposes an incumbent that's just how that works and um should it be that way well i don't know you know there's a lot of reasons why it is that way so the fact that um the fact that Pelosi and uh, the other the other caucus leaders were supporting him, it's it's not even that I think it's good that they did. That's how it works. That is not surprising. And e even though he's, you know, anti-abortion, again, he's the Democrat. He's the one who caucuses with them. He's the re it's his vote that is that is one of the, you know, the two or three vote margin that Nancy Pelosi is speaker. In any case, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Um, how long has he, he's been there for a while, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, like 10, 15, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Um, but he's been, you know, there's been, this isn't the first cycle where there's been like a, a challenge to him because, you know, he is out of sync with the Democrats on a lot of issues. Yeah. Quick asterisk. I'd like to, uh, apologize for my pronunciation. I took Latin in high school and should really not trust myself without, uh, preparing that. You so. took Latin. I took I Latin. 
Yay, classics. Yeah, you know, it's now are you are you are you, you know, it's funny cuz cuz uh we had to make a choice with a, with one of our sons, you know, we didn't dictate whether he would take Latin. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I was very, you know, just kind of fatherly thing like, "Oh, that'd be cool cuz I took Latin." <laughs> and it's funny though that I, that I I both wanted him to, but I also had a harder time justifying it than than I might have when I was, I don't know. I've I've been very well, into kind of uh, language stuff recently. So are you are you glad you did? Yeah, I mean, it, it is one of those things that when people ask you those kind of like trade schooly questions, like what are you going to do with that? It's like, well, I don't know, nothing. But like, I think it's really interesting. And my Latin teacher in high school was one of those like you know the teacher you remember as inspiring yeah. you and guiding you. And so I you know did a classics minor in college. And that was really cool because it meant that like, for some reason, the classics department was given the cool part of Georgetown, which is in like the big Hogwartsy building. And, <laughs> you know, you got the so it kind of felt, I don't know, Dead Poets Society ish. And all my classes were tiny and full of like only a few nerds who cared about, you know, the the reign of, uh, I don't know, whoever. So, you know, I liked it. Yeah, no, I'm 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 with you there. And I didn't do a classics major in college, but I did take a lot of classics classes. And I um, with, I think at my at my university, they actually weren't even minors. I don't think you could mm. even do that. Um, but I continued taking. I took Latin for a few semesters. Like uh, so, I, I continued doing classics in 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 college, and I took a little Greek. And I, so I'm I'm into it. And I and I, I guess the one part I was a little I was less certain about is that um, there is still an idea that a lot of people that like Latin is like the ultimate grammar. And so if you know Latin, you become sort of like a grammar genius and and you understand the sort of the deep structure of language and all that stuff. And that's kind of true for Romance languages, since obviously it is the deep structure of French and Spanish and Italian and a, and a handful of other languages. Um, but it's funny that it, that it has actually had a lot of... Um, it's been imposed on English in many ways. Like, why can't we split infinitives? It's not our fault you can't do that in French, right? <laughs> there's like this, this, there's like a, a, a neo-Latin imperialism that it's sort of imposed itself. There's all sorts of stuff about um, a lot of, there are a lot of weird rules in English grammar and spelling that originate in the fact that in the 1500s and 1600s, 1700s, even into the 1800s, the English educational establishment, they were so like into Latin that they decided that English had to kind of conform to Latin. Anyway, we weren't even going to talk about Latin, (laughs) but I'm still into it. I just have, I, 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 uh, I have I I am I am into it but the arguments that I used to make for why I was into it are are less convincing to me now but it seems like my kid will take Latin so we'll see. Yay, you know, Latin lives he'll, on. He'll, yeah, well he'll maybe he'll take like the Latin name Maximus or something like that. <laughs> so, um I think that I think that pretty much covers it, right? Yeah, uh, just one yeah. more thing I wanted to note which is tomorrow we're holding um our TPM event on right. row what's next which yours truly will be hosting. And we have a panel of like really interesting people from kind of all different facets of what we're going to talk about, you know, from the medical to the legal to the, you know, activist to the journalism. So I think it's going to be 
it's going to be really interesting and a nexus of a lot of what you and I have been talking about and what we've been writing about. So I think it'll be good. It's at um, 1 p.m. tomorrow, I think. Double check that. Yeah. And and, and uh, for anybody who's interested and if you're listening yes. to the podcast today, just go to the site. We'll, we'll have, you know, we, we'll have information about it and uh we really hope you'll 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 join us you know uh we events virtual or in person have been something that we've been building obviously the, the pandemic sort of you know threw a bit of a wrench in, into the in person uh part of that but this is a big we're we're very into this and this particular event is very timely and got a lot of exciting guests so so join us we'd really we'd really appreciate it if, we, if you did and we think you will um it's hard, it's hard to say like enjoy yeah. an event at this point when it's about when it's about the choice issue but we think you'll find it illuminating and be glad yeah. that, be glad that you did so uh and, let me uh, remind our you our producer Jackie did confirm 1 p.m. 1 p.m. Okay, 1 p.m. tomorrow. So uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off uh, with promo code TPM and that is at Grady'sColdBrew.com. I think that's it. Great. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.